Today is the concluding message of the book of Acts. We've been in the book of Acts for, it's been a couple of years, and uh, we're going to wrap it up today, and just to, uh, I've been saying this, but it was in the bulletin as well today, but just to uh, remind you once again, not next week, but in two weeks, we're planning on starting our next series, which will not be a book of the Bible. Uh, I plan to preach through the statement of theology. Now, for us as a church, we don't have a separate statement of theology. We uh, agree with or uh, believe in or accept the conservative Mennonite Conference Statement of Theology. That's the conference that this church is part of. Some of you may not even know that or know very much about that, but we are part of a group of churches, and it's the Statement of Theology that was drafted by the conference. Um, it says at the front of the book there, uh, booklet, it was, it was been a while ago. Uh, they should have been in your mailbox today. If you have a mailbox here, you should have gotten a copy of that. I would encourage you to read it. It's, I mean, when I say this, I'm not exaggerating. It's a quick read. It's very fast. Unless you take ch- time to go through and look at every biblical reference, which you should do that too as well, um, that will take a little bit longer. But the read itself, it's, it's about 12 or 13 sections about what we believe. A statement of theology, well, that's getting in a couple weeks' message, but it's, it's what we believe about who God is and who we are. Um, and so... Uh, you're going to take some time to preach through that. If you don't have a mailbox here or you want another copy, we do have additional copies here. Those are on the literature rack. I don't know if you guys have noticed the literature rack back there. Glenn has done a fantastic job with uh, uh, putting some stuff on there, just little booklets, things that are quick reads. If you have questions, kind of spark some, some, some thinking on your part. Uh, but they're on the top shelf all the way almost to the right there. Uh, there's more copies if you don't have a mailbox or if you want a second copy for some reason. Uh, but pick one up and read it. Uh, we'll be going through that. That'll take us through the rest of the year probably once we get there. Today, however, we're going to conclude uh, our study of the book of Acts. And it's a bit of a message that I think is necessary, but I don't always like to preach very much because it's not one of those messages where we, uh, I read a, a Bible text to you. I, at least I don't think you want me to read the whole book of Acts to you this morning. So, uh, or do you want me to? That puts you in a bad spot, right? Because you're going to say no to reading the Bible, and you're like, I can't say that, but you really don't want to sit here while I read the book of Acts to you. Um, I won't. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to try to wrap some things together. There really is two things I want to do, and that is to give a, an overview, kind of a review of what we've studied, kind of high-level review of what we've studied in depth over the last couple of years. And then I want to draw some, just some major themes that I think are present in the book of Acts. In many ways, some of these major themes uh, are going to be representative of what I would say, excuse me, are the major themes of the whole Bible itself, which makes sense because we want to see every book in Scripture fit into the overall story of the Bible. There's not a book in Scripture that's just sort of a, a, like it's just hanging out there and talking about something that no other book is talking about. That doesn't really exist. So let's just jump right in because the uh, best way for us to move through this is, is to do exactly that. So let's go through. This is a reminder. I divided the text up into sections, some of them longer than others, but in what I felt was a way to kind of break apart and where the action sort of changed a bit, or we can see some subtle changes in what's happening with the characters involved. And uh, we're just going to kind of step back through that at a high level here. So the first chapter of the book of Acts, I called setting the stage, because that's really what it was. It was Luke reaching back. He wrote the gospel of Luke, and then he wrote the book of Acts of the Apostles. And you should see there's a bit of an overlap between those two books. So the last part of Luke and the first part of Acts, he's reaching back and saying, remember when Jesus rose again, and he talked to the disciples, he gave them some instructions, and then he went into heaven. And then Luke says, we want to make sure we're ready for what we're going to hear in the book of Acts. 
We see things like the apostles giving themselves to prayer a lot. They took some time to replace Judas Iscariot uh, since he was no longer with them and uh, put another guy in place. They were really just setting the stage for what God was about to do because Jesus had told them that. Jesus said, wait. I want you to wait until the time comes that it's right. And you'll know it. And boy, did they ever know it because we come to Acts chapter 2. The church is what I call the church being birthed. And you'll notice that almost all the rest of the sections have the title of the church because I think that's what the book of the Acts is primarily about. It's a, it's a manuscript for us. It's a historical document for us that tells us what is the church supposed to look like. Let the church be the church. If that's supposed to be true, what's the church supposed to do? What's it supposed to be like? What's supposed to happen in the church? So we see the church being birthed, and that, of course, happened when the Holy Spirit came. If you want to make a distinction, that's where I make my distinction. If you want to make a distinction between Jesus, he came, he brought the kingdom of God, he died on the cross, he resurrected, but the church was born, New Testament believers were born when the Holy Spirit came because that's an integral part of the new covenant. God said, I will put my law inside of you. I will take up residence with you, in you. My Holy Spirit will dwell with you, not just every once in a while like it was in the Old Testament, but you can have him permanently take up residence. You can be in Christ, is a New Testament phrase that Paul would use later on. You can be in Christ, which is to say Christ is in you. The church was birthed, and we saw the, just the fantastic beginnings as God began to bring in great numbers those, I mean, we see some of just magnificent growth over the first uh, uh, little bit where the church was birthed. And it came on, on some powerful preaching that the apostles were doing. It came on when God was moving dramatically and miraculously even, uh, showing who he was and that he was, in fact, the one standing behind Jesus. And over and over again, in those first couple of chapters, uh, two through seven, you're going to find, you're going to hear the apostles coming back to Jesus and his resurrection, and he is the one, and there's salvation in no other name, and what you have to do is repent. You have to join with Jesus. You have to give him your allegiance. You have to separate yourself from everything else. You have to come under this, and of course, we also saw immediately that opposition rose, right? Opposition came into what God was doing. At the end of that section was a pretty pivotal event. That event was when the opposition rose to the degree that they were going to take someone's life. The opposition became so strong, and this was opposition from the Jews, became so strong that they said, we need to stop this and we'll go to great lengths to do it. And those great lengths involve even killing someone. So we see Stephen being stoned, murdered at the end of chapter 7. That takes us to the next section. The church became scattered because it says from that moment, people scattered from Jerusalem. It was, there, was this, there was this, you should see this, this great hub of activity, this growing momentum and all this, 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 this growth and, and these people. And then suddenly upon, uh, when that persecution began, they scattered and they suddenly were flung everywhere. And I will tell you this, and you can do this about all the way through. I will tell you this, what looked like was going to be the thing that throws the damper on the fire that throws the dirt on the fire and, and, and quenches the, the burning flames. What looked like that was really just a big old woof and it scattered all these hot ashes everywhere, if you're going to keep the fire analogy, and the fire just grew. Now, I would remind you, Jesus actually said that, right? He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea and to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And we're seeing the first part of that. 
I would just remind you again, I've said it then, I've said it probably hundreds of times throughout the book of Acts, what often appears to us as a roadblock or a hindrance or some kind of movement aside or some kind of interruption is often, in fact, God propelling or moving us to someplace we would not have gone otherwise for his glory, even for our benefit, I might add. So the church is scattered. And what began probably piecemeal, we have to understand, there were some people leaving Jerusalem. There were some people talking about Jesus outside of Jerusalem. But when this happened in chapters 8 and 9, we see just a, 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 a bigger level, a wholesale scattering of the believers, and they took Jesus everywhere they went. And they began to find believers and pockets of believers and churches beginning in the surrounding area. Then we come to another pivotal, monumental event in the book of Acts. For up to this point, and again, there will have been scatterings of people who have talked to non-Jews about Jesus and said, you can also believe in Jesus. But up to this point, primarily all the activity we're seeing, all the conversions we're seeing, all the people we see coming to Jesus are Jews converting, which is why you see such tremendous opposition from the Jews. But Jews converting. And it's, of course, in these chapters, chapter 10, where Peter has this fantastic vision. Remember this vision? He's hungry, but he's praying, and he's waiting for the food to be prepared. And, it is, and in his state, he has a vision. He falls into trance. He has a vision, and God lowers this, this big giant sail almost, as it were, and it has all these animals in it. And God is making a point to Peter. He says, Peter, I don't want you to call unclean what I call clean. I don't want you to say no way to what I say there is a way. And Peter, of course, unbeknownst to him, God is working in this centurion's heart too, in Cornelius' heart. And he's waiting and he's sending people to Peter. He doesn't know what's going on. He has no idea that Peter's going to see this, uh, this incredible vision. He doesn't know this at all. And yet... If I'm talking to Bible school children, it just so happens that they come right after he has the vision, right? It didn't just so happen, right? No, no, you guys are all out of Bible school mode. Nobody yelled, God is sovereign back to me. Because you can't, oh, somebody did back there. I see some fingers pointing. Yeah, by the way, not a bad habit for us adults to get into. When you hear those phrases out in the world, when you're having conversation every day, you might be surprised how many times it comes out of your own mouth, in fact. And you say things like it just so happened or that, there, you know, coincidentally or just, you know, it, it just worked out that way right? To correct yourself immediately and say, no, that's not true. God is sovereign. It didn't just so happen. God was arranging it. Anyway, Cornelius sends some messengers. They go get Peter. Peter comes back. And in this incredible scene, Peter, remember, he's lived. He has lived through the Holy Spirit coming. He's lived through and this incredible scene. As he's beginning to share the gospel about who Jesus is with these people, he sees the Holy Spirit come on them. And he suddenly begins to put things together. Here's the vision I had. Here I see it unfolding right in front of me. God is opening up. Now we know because we read the whole Bible. But for them, this was, this, was, this was tremendous. God is opening up the church to go beyond just those who were Jews and believe in the one true God. But to anybody who might come to Jesus. Anybody who might repent and say, I want to give my allegiance to him. The church is opened, and in this context, by the way, it's also in that text there that we read about the conversion of Paul, so I shouldn't have skipped over that, but it is, it happens in those, when the church is opened, that, that Paul has his, his, uh, his, his miraculous, his incredible transformation to go from Saul to Paul. And in chapter 13, we find the next 
part of what God is doing. You see, began in Jerusalem, being scattered, it went out to the next area around there, then being open to being beyond just Jews, God says, now we're going to send the church out. We're going to not just depend on a little bit of scattering. We're not going to depend on a little bit of persecution to scatter abroad, just, you know, just regionally scatter. We're going to send and begin to reach out into the beyond the region, into every part of the earth. And we see the first missionary journey. We call it Paul's first missionary journey. But we see the church being sent, Acts 13 and 14. Paul and Barnabas set out. They take John Mark with them. And off they go. And they begin to plant churches in what we call today uh, Turkey, but was Asia Minor, what's, what's known as Asia Minor. We come then to a critical juncture in the book of Acts. Again, you notice I'm breaking a lot of these on what I call critical pieces. We're breaking apart the book of Acts, and there are critical pieces that happen. For as the church began to grow, as it was opened, as you can imagine, when you take what is primarily one culture, monocultural believers, when you take that and you begin to add people from different cultural backgrounds, now suddenly you're going to have some problems. Because all of us, and I want you to hear this, by the way, all of us have wrapped into who we are and what, how we do things, even how we follow Christ. We have cultural things wrapped in. I'm not here to tell you that's bad, by the way. I don't think you can get rid of that because you come from a culture. You were raised in a culture. You can't not have that. It's like saying you can't have a worldview. Well, that's not possible. Everyone has a worldview. It's how you look at life. It's just, it, just, it, is, it just is. But we must recognize that all of us bring those things in. And they began to really run into that. They began to say, here's people that want to become Christians, but culturally they're very different. What do they have to change? What do they have to do to really become Christians? You see, we have all these things that we say to follow Christ means this and then this and then this. And I'm not saying they were wrong, by the way. I don't think Paul would say they were wrong. I don't think any of them would say they're wrong. However, the issue began to be, when I have people who don't come from that background, do they also all have to follow those things? Do they have to become, for them specifically, do they have to become Jewish essentially first before they can become a Christian? And they had this big council. They were having this big debate and they came back to Jerusalem, back where it all started, back where the, the, the fathers, the heads of the church were. And they had this discussion. If you remember back when we went through that, that section, I made a statement, and I don't, know if I'm, I don't know if I'm overstating or not, but I made the statement that depending on which way that decision would have gone would have impacted what happened with the church. Had they gone the other direction and said, you know, I think you really do have to become Jewish first. Now, I, I mean, God is sovereign, so I, I didn't work that way, and I don't think it would have worked that way. But had they done that, I don't think we would see, at least that church, we wouldn't see that church where it is today, which is the global church. We wouldn't see that. For when God said... Don't call unclean what I call clean. There's a lot broader and deeper implications to that than what probably was first realized. I have to say this because I think today we still struggle with some of those same things. Again, every one of us has a cultural background, right? We all have things we were raised with. We all have things that are part of following Jesus. And I'm not, again, I'm not telling you those things are wrong. We must be very careful, however, in saying those things are necessary to be a follower of Jesus. That's the distinction we have to make. What is biblical 
clearly pointed to in here necessary to be a follower of Jesus and what is what I have put in place in my life and, and it probably maybe generations of my, my people's lives to help us be faithful. Not that we don't want to change those things. We have to get rid of those things. But let's just recognize that I can never have Jesus plus something else for people to be followers of Christ. The Bible is very clear that when you confess Jesus, when you, what, what's Romans 10, 9 say? 10, 9 and 10. Somebody, can anybody quote that for us this morning? I'm sure somebody can. Romans 10, 9, what does it say? If you confess with your mouth, and you'll be saved. Verse 10 goes on to say, for it's with your mouth that you confess, or actually it's the first other way around, right? With your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. I would say, and I don't, I don't want to say this to make people upset or frustrated or angry or wondering what I'm saying about this, because I don't, I, I'm not a big, I, if anybody knows me, I, I mean, I'm a pretty like, like I don't change a lot of things in my life. <laughs> like I'm, I'm pretty routine oriented, pretty, I mean, I, I, I do things a lot like I did growing up. I mean, it's just how it is. So I'm not, I, I'm not a guy that likes changing things for sake of change. But I would say to the detriment of the church over the years, we have slowed the progress of the gospel by requiring more than just that when people become believers. It is still a critical decision that we have to make. I mean, if I were honest with you, I think we wrestle with it in how we interact with the community right next to us. Because they don't look a lot like we do. They don't act at all like we do. Do they have to look like us and act like us for them to be followers of Christ? That's probably a whole other discussion that's not part of the overview of the book of Acts. Thankfully, by God's grace, they said it seems good to us, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us, and we will require just a few things. And those things, if you remember, they centered around where people's hearts were. They centered around idolatry primarily. Do you, have you truly, if I, I put it that way, have you truly placed your allegiance with Christ? I would tell you that's a really good test for us still because there are a lot of things that people aren't willing to change that reflects where their allegiance really is. There's a lot of things that we aren't willing to change sometimes that reflects where our allegiance really is. Has your allegiance really switched to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ? That's the question. That must happen. Otherwise, you cannot claim salvation. For you cannot have salvation without lordship. And allegiance is a question of lordship. All right. In the next section, I call it the church expanding because what happened was as they'd sent, they made this critical decision. Paul says, this is great news. I want to go let the people know. And as he does that, he's on his way, and he begins to, to give this encouraging report. But as he's on his way to all the places, God yet again has something different in mind, right? For you remember, he's in Asia Minor. He wants to travel and share about Jesus, and it says that he was prevented from the Holy, by the Holy Spirit from coming, going on in that. And then he has another dream, and he sees a man from Macedonia, which is across the the Aegean Sea over in what's modern day Greece and he says come over we need you and the church expanded because Paul said yes I'm going to follow what the Holy Spirit's telling me and he goes across the water he goes into Greece and he begins to plant churches there so the church has now grown there's no longer a little section of Jerusalem there's no longer a little region of Judea or even Samaria above it but it has grown and expanded Asia Minor Greece and God isn't done yet right but Paul makes this journey and he comes back and we read all about that by the way, it was on that journey that he split. Paul and Barnabas split. Barnabas wanted to take Mark, and Paul said, I don't want to because Mark abandoned us last time, and so he took Silas with him. 
There's a little bit of a split there. I changed another, I, I made another section simply because they came back home to Antioch where they started and they went back out. And this time, the express purpose of going back out was different. It was not going back out. And in fact, the result we saw was not going back out to plant new churches. Their express desire of the third journey was to go back out and strengthen the churches. I don't know if you asked, I didn't really talk about this when, when we went through this. I don't know if you asked yourself, why is this section here? Why is it important for us to know? But I think it's very important for us to see that as God is starting and planting the church, he's not just, he is in this business, but he's not just in the business of expanding the gospel, but he's also in the business of making sure that where the gospel has been planted, it may flourish. It may grow. He's recognizing, or he's helping us to recognize, that it's not just about sowing seed and getting fruit out of that and then moving on. It's about recognizing that there has to be growth that comes there. One of the things that I actually really am a big, I'm excited about is one of the taglines that our conference of churches has adopted is the tagline to mature and multiply because I think it captures both of those. God wants growth of all kinds, right? He wants growth outwardly. He wants more people coming into the kingdom, but God also wants growth deeper. He wants us to mature. And we see an entire journey that Paul has. And we call it a missionary journey, but really the reality is he's going around the places he's already established churches, and his primary function is, I mean, he's always, he's always showing Jesus where he goes, but his primary function is to strengthen the churches that are there, to strengthen them and make sure that they're faithfully following Jesus and not getting sidetracked. It's out of this, by the way, that many of his letters come. For he sees and hears what's going on. He says, listen, I want to make sure we address this. You recognize that lots of Paul's letters, as amazing as an apostle that Paul was, right? Like this, this, this frontier missionary kind of guy. He's going out and he's spreading the gospel. He's planting new churches. But all the stuff we get from him in the Bible is actually on the other side of it. It's actually strengthening churches. It's actually learning how to be mature as believers. He strengthens the church. And it's at the end of this journey, as he's making his inbound route again, that we get this building sense of doom, right? This impending sense of things aren't going to end like we want them to end when we get back to where we're going. In fact, Paul says, I'm heading to Jerusalem, and multiple times, believers, people filled with the Holy Spirit say, don't go, Paul. Don't go. It's going to end in chains. It's going to end not good for you. And Paul says, I must go. I'm driven by the Spirit. The Lord is asking me to go. And that's, of course, the final section that we just spend a bunch of time. It's a pretty long section. I called it the church expands. But the reality is the first part of that was really all about Paul's capture, his, his various trials, all the stuff that was going on. But I called it the church expands because we see that ultimately that's what God was doing. Where did Paul end up? He ended up outside of where he had already gone, right? He ended up further away from where he had ever yet gone on any of his journeys. Again, what started in Jerusalem, what got scattered into Judea, what got opened up to the Gentiles and then sent into the, into the, uh, the broader uh, South Asian, Middle Eastern world, then eventually expanded over even further into, into Greece and into a little bit of Europe there, now has gone all the way into today, Italy, which is, everybody agrees, it's Europe. And we know that it went even further than that. It went on into Europe. But Paul, that's where the book uh, ends with us, is Paul in Rome. And the church is still expanding. We talked about the fact it's left a little bit open-ended because the church is still expanding today. Now, it's unfortunately con contracting in some places too, but it's still expanding today. All right, 
let's change direction just a bit because I'd like to just pick out some major themes that I think we see and, and sort of summarize out of the book of Acts. I kind of tried to order these so they hook together, but it's not a whole lot necessarily to that. Uh, if you have a handout, I did give you a spot to kind of write some things in if it helps you stay engaged. Here's some major themes that I think we come, that we draw out of the book of Acts. The first is this. I think it's very clear from the book of Acts, really this is the heart of all scripture, but the book of Acts, that God's great design is for the gospel to go to the whole world. That's what he intended. Go back to the Old Testament. He says, to Abraham through you, all nations will be blessed. Go back even further to that, to the Garden of Eden, and he says, in your seed, Adam, will be the crushing of Satan. In those things already are the glimmerings, the hints, the openings of God's heart for the gospel to go to the whole world. As we saw in the book of Acts, we will see everywhere there's opposition to the gospel. There's opposition from the outside, and unfortunately there's opposition from what I would call the inside. And we saw both of those in the book of Acts, right? Think about it. You might say the Jewish opposition was from the outside, but the reality is they claim to serve the same one true God that we do. Which means that the progression or the, the, the movement of the gospel being hindered by them is opposition from the inside, isn't it? And it's no different. Again, we, we sometimes are very easy, it's easy to be hard on the Jewish people sometimes, and we don't recognize how we ourselves inside sometimes are opposing the movement of the gospel. But it is God's heart. When Peter writes his letter, he closes, he's at the ending, he's writing his final things, and he's saying, listen, we know what the end is going to be like, right? There's going to be a roar, there's going to be an element, there's going to be fire, and everything's going to be burning up, everything's going to be destroyed, all those things. And all those people that say, you know what, you've said that for years and years and years, it ain't ever going to happen. He says, listen, wasn't it like that when Noah came? They said, yeah, yeah, you say it's coming, you say it's coming, it's never coming. And then by his word... Then it happened just like that, didn't it? He said, it's going to be just like that in those day, in, when, when Christ comes again. You're going to say all these, there's going to be scoffers, there's going to be people saying it's never going to happen. It's this, it, you've, you've said that for centuries already. And then by his word, one day, it's all going to happen. But in the middle of that, he says, don't count God's slowness. Don't count God waiting. Don't count God saying, I'm going to wait till the time is right as being slow or not being able to fulfill it, but instead recognize that God is giving great patience. And here's where he says, for God does not desire that a single person would perish, but that all would come to everlasting life. This is God's heart for the gospel to go to the whole world. His patience is allowing us to take the gospel to places it's never been. I, I could get excited. Maybe sometime I'll get to preach a message. Tonight. I mean, it's amazing how, when you look at all the people groups in the world and all the languages spoken in the world, it's amazing the progress that's been made in the last decade in getting the Word of God into languages and into people who've never heard it before. We have made more progress in the last 10 years than we did in the previous 1,500. It tells me a couple of things. A, it, it, it excites me because it tells me that, that we're accomplishing this task, it also tells me that the end is coming, because that's coming right after. That's why God is waiting. That's why the patience of God that we're seeing is because he wants everyone to know. Now, people have to make choices, don't they? And we know from Scripture that many will make the wrong choice. 
But the heart of God is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the word that he has given to us goes to the whole world. And as much progress we've made, it's unbelievable there's people living on this globe still that have not ever heard. God's heart is for the gospel to go to the whole world. In that, I want to point this out. It was specifically stated at the end of the text that we just covered, but it was throughout the whole book we saw these themes, these two things, that wherever the gospel goes forth, these two things are always prominent. It's a proclamation of the kingdom of God, and it's a teaching about who Jesus is. It's those two put together. Now, I think that's very, that's very key to understand what that is. I think I mentioned this last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it again, but the proclamation of the kingdom of God is the proclamation of who God is and who we are, and the proclamation of the kingdom of God must by necessity refer to the fact that that God is holy and perfect, and we are sinful, which leaves us in a desperate place because we're separated from him. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. The knowledge of who God really is and what he can do, but what we have done and has put us at odds, that's all wrapped up in there because the teaching of Jesus Christ then is the teaching that Jesus came to usher in or to finalize someday, but to usher in and finalize this kingdom in its finality, who God really is. And the fact that it's done what Jesus did. It's done. By one sacrifice, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. uh, Well, many people think it's Paul, but we don't know for sure. The writer of Hebrews would say, Jesus is the one. Over and over and over again in the book of Acts, we would see that. They would proclaim, notice how many times they would come and talk about God first and the kingdom of God. They were talking to Jews, but even to Gentiles, who God is, and then they'd always come back and say, now we got to tell you about Jesus. He was the one. And when it was the Jewish audience, they would always say, and this man whom God foreknew. He knew it was coming, but we were the ones that took him to the cross. The leaders, I mean, if they're talking to the leaders, but even if they weren't talking, the leaders of the Jews, they put him to the cross, but God knew all that. He sent him for that purpose. He is the fulfillment of what God was said was going to come. The Jewish understanding, by the way, was that the Messiah was going to fulfill the kingdom, was going to bring about the kingdom, which is why those two always go together. It's not false, by the way. That's true. The Messiah was to usher in and to fulfill the kingdom. Jesus was that Messiah. He ushered it in and he will fulfill it. The kingdom of God and the teaching of Jesus Christ. There's a big part of the book of Acts that I think we must recognize is about teaching us what the role of believers is. And I could spend a lot of time with this. I probably won't spend as much as really could be spent. But this book, this letter, what Paul, what, I mean, so what Luke writes down about uh, the, the birth of the church and all these things happening with the church, they're really instructing us on what the role of believers is. What are we supposed to do? I would suggest to you the very first thing that we should put high on our list is the one we just t- covered, the point number two, that our role is to proclaim the kingdom of God and teach Jesus. That's what we're supposed to be doing. If Paul would later write that we are to be ambassadors for God, that's what that looks like. It's to proclaim who God is, who we are, the kind of help that we need, and then to teach about who Jesus is to say he's the one that took care of that. He's the one that satisfied that need. He's the one that died in my place and in your place. He's the one that's alive again. He was resurrected. He's not dead still. He's resurrected. He's the one that gives us the hope. We have no other hope. That's the role of believers. But also in there, we see that this role comes out in different ways. By the way, I don't know if you ever think about this, but when we think about the gospel um, expanding, the gospel reaching new believers, bringing new people in the kingdom, what do you think is the mechanism by which that happens? How does that happen? How do we bring new believers into the kingdom? 
I mean, I kind of gave you the answer already. It's, it's point number two right there. We proclaim the kingdom and we proclaim Jesus. We talk about who Jesus is because Jesus is the one that... But if the question changes to say, and this is, what, this is key for us, I think. If the question changes to say, how do, we, how do we exhort and encourage and support existing believers? Not new ones. If we're not, if we're going to say, well, that's not really what God has me to bring new believers in. But I'm really more for teaching, uh, for exhorting and encouraging existing. What's the mechanism then? I would tell you it's the exact same thing. You still proclaim the kingdom of God and teach Jesus. For Jesus is still the answer to every one of our needs, right? He's not just the answer for your salvation need. He's also the answer for every need you have. For you to grow in Christ requires you to continue to have a growing knowledge of the kingdom of God and the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It's the same mechanism. It doesn't matter whether we're reaching new believers or ones we want to be new believers or encouraging existing believers. We still proclaim the kingdom of God and we still teach about who Jesus is. Because that's where the answers are. It's not in me or in some method or in some church or in some whatever, anything else. It's in Jesus. What he has done and what he is going to do. We also see believers interact with each other. They care for each other. This point has to be made. From the book of Acts, we see that the, the church earnestly loved each other. They cared for each other. In fact, in many ways, by our, our methods, our measures, they went above and beyond in caring for each other. They sacrificially loved each other. They did that to their, their, their specific local group of believers. They did that across groups of believers. They took offerings and sent them to each other. We, see, we just get hints of that, but we see it pretty clearly in Scripture that the church, the role of believers is to love and care and support for each other. I, one more thing I want to point out is that I see just over and over again in the book of Acts, the role of believers is to pray. It began with that, and we saw many times throughout, we saw the power of prayer. We saw the, the commitment to saying, we need to see God's hand move, and the way God's hand gets moved is for us to hit our knees and pray. It's not for us to work harder. It's not for us to try to do more things. It's not for us. It's for us to pray. And then we see the hand of God move. That hasn't changed. The role of believers is still to proclaim the kingdom of God, to teach about Jesus, to always bring it back to Jesus, to love each other earnestly, sacrificially love each other, care for each other, and to pray, to pray, to pray, to pray. I have to make this point, however. Very specifically stated, if you, go back and, if you would go back and reread the book of Acts now with this point in mind, you would see very specifically stated almost every key story in the book of Acts at the beginning. It tails off a bit in the end, but the implication is still true. Almost every specific act mentions that the Holy Spirit has a role in this, that the Holy Spirit did this, the Holy Spirit came down, the Holy Spirit moved this, the Holy Spirit moved this, or happened to, worked it this way in somebody the power of the Holy Spirit. All the things I just talked about, the role of believers, quite frankly, if I would be honest with you, I would have to tell you, are not possible without the Holy Spirit's aid. You already probably know this, because how often do you give to yourself to hours, much less minutes of prayer on just your human strength, just your human desires? How often is that? Does that happen a lot? Maybe you're different than I am. That doesn't happen very often for me. In fact, if it's up to my flesh, it would never happen. 
For us to be praying people requires the Holy Spirit in us moving and exhorting us and leading us to our knees and drawing us to say, Merlin, the only place that God's hand is going to get moved is in the spiritual realm of prayer. That's where it happens. Prayer's the work. We don't, I don't do that. I don't do that work unless the Holy Spirit's in me. Every step of the way, proclaiming the kingdom, teaching Christ, loving each other, sacrificially caring for each other, none of those things happen without the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who tells us when to go places or where to be. It is the Holy Spirit who tells us what words to say. It is the Holy Spirit who prepares hearts to hear. It's the Holy Spirit who helps them convert. It's the Holy Spirit who leads them in following Him. You get, the, you get the common theme there? It's the Holy Spirit. We must have the power of the Holy Spirit. It's why Jesus said, wait, wait, stay here, wait until the Holy Spirit comes. When He comes upon you, then you will receive power. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and in all the ends of the earth. Again, I, I've said this before, and, and I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody. And I don't say this to be harsh, critical, to step on toes unnecessarily. But I, there, there's, there's a lot in our specific cultural background. We were taught to work hard, and that's a good thing. We should work hard. But it, 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 it sometimes becomes a thing where we are unable to allow or to let the Holy Spirit work in us and use us because we're so used to just doing things under our own strength. Even when we do good things, and I could not preach this message. You heard this so many times. You've already heard it today, but I could not tell you a theme of, of Scripture, really, but of the book of Acts without naming the one that we've talked about over and over and over again. At its basic level, all of Scripture, but at its basic level, the book of Acts is about the sovereignty of God. It's a declaration that God will do what He knows needs to be done and what He wills to be done, that He gets glory on earth. He created earth. He created men. He has sovereignty over them. He created kings in the position of those things. He has sovereignty over them. All these things we saw over and over and over again, all the things you're going to read about here, God's heart to take the gospel of the world and how that comes through the proclamation of God and, and, and how that comes through the, the proclaiming, the teaching of Jesus Christ and the role we're supposed to have and how hard we're supposed to work and the fact that he sent God, sent the Holy Spirit, all of those things still rest upon the fact that God is sovereign and is the one who's arranging these things to happen. There is nothing outside of his control. This is what enables us, or should enable us, to say, though there be bumps in the road, I choose to continue to follow Christ. Though there be interruptions, I choose to continue to follow Christ. Though there be painful things, though there be separations, though there be heartaches, though there be things where I have to say no to myself, and quite frankly, those are sometimes the biggest ones we're unwilling to let go of. They almost always are, in fact that I have to say no to myself on, things that I see everyone else seemingly getting and I don't get, things that everyone else gets to do and I don't get to do. Though there be those, there's nothing outside the control of God and because God is sovereign, his promises are true. I will continue to follow him. I am convinced, I'm convinced 
our faithfulness as Christians is directly proportional to our understanding of the true sovereignty of God. If we do not, if we do not really believe that, or if there's limits to our belief of that, then there's, by necessity, limits to our faith. There's some places we just won't go. There's some things we just won't do. There's some things we just won't give up. There's some things we just won't allow to happen. There's some things we just don't think we can walk through or do. But I would remind you, as a sovereign God, it is his heart to take the gospel to the world, and it is his desire to use you. This is why we began with this verse. I'm going to end with this verse. It is still God's desire that we wait until, well, until the Holy Spirit is working in us, that we receive the power when he comes, and that we will be witnesses. Now, he mentions some locations specific to the story there. The locations have changed for us, haven't they? Maybe perhaps if I would rephrase that today. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in your home. It is very important there, by the way. In your home and in your neighborhood, in your county, in your state, to the ends of the earth. Wherever God chooses to send you or to use you. Well, I hope it's been helpful to look at the Acts of the Apostles and recognize that as followers of Jesus Christ, there's many lessons we can learn, but there's many things that are to be brought into our lives. We continue to live the story of God taking his gospel to the world. I hope you'll participate in that. I hope you're willing to participate in that. Let's close today with prayer. God, thank you so much for your word. Even today, you give us every opportunity, but even today you give us an opportunity to just again say, God, I want to be part of what you're doing. I want to be part of, I want to be a believer. I want to have the salvation of of Jesus Christ, but I want to have the lordship of Jesus Christ along with it. I want to be a believer so that I am part of what you're doing. Not just so that I'm ready. I do want to be ready. When the Lord Jesus comes, I want to be ready, but I want to just, I want to also be part of what you're, I want to, I want to believe and, and participate because I want to be part of what you're doing. It's an amazing thing that you allow us to work according to your purposes and for your purposes. And you like, you, you see us as channels. You work through us. In fact, the Holy Spirit is, we are a channel for the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much that you've sent him to us. It was mentioned several times this morning already, and I would just say it again. Thank you so much that you sent the Holy Spirit to us to enable us to be faithful to you, to enable us to love each other with earnestness, to enable us to sacrificially care for each other, to enable us to proclaim the kingdom and to teach about Jesus, to enable us to participate in what you're doing and to pray, to connect with you in the spiritual realm Thank you that you've given us a source of power and authority in the Holy Spirit. We don't claim that as ours. We claim it as that we're a channel for you to work through, but we are delighted that you want to do that. May we humbly receive that, that you might receive the glory, Father, that we might be like John the Baptist. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. Lord, thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand this morning?
The Lord wants a faithful church. He's given us his word to help us uh, decide and discern what that looks like. This morning we spent some time with some of those themes. May those themes continue to resonate in you this week. Lord God, I pray that you would seal what is necessary in our hearts and our minds that may not leave us so that this week we are mindful of how we are to be faithful to you. Those things that I said that weren't from you, God, I pray you strike them that we'd never even uh, realize we heard them. May you receive glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace this morning.